Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about worship a lot, and uh, hopefully been some things that we've been learning. I know I've been learning. I hope you've been learning too. It's uh, caused me to rethink some of the ways that I worship God, the ways that I come before God, uh, things that happen in our time together, things that happen in my private worship time with Him, and just just trying to be much more real, much more uh, honest about weaknesses. Maybe this is why I got my thorn in the flesh kind of thing. <laughs> you know, just a, a thing to say, you know, you, you can't just do everything. You can't just do everything you want to do that uh, uh, really you need to depend on God and so much. Uh, we've learned some things in this series. Uh, we learned, first of all, that God alone is worthy of our worship. There is but one God. There is one God that is uh, able to uh, uh, receive our worship and worthy of that worship, and, and we need to... And look at that, because so many other gods are out there vying for attention, you know, pushing for our attention. We've learned that what Jesus said about worship is that worship, those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth, that there must be honesty, integrity, there must be sincerity, there must be a, a you know, an all-out effort to come before God and to worship him, not just some, you know, haphazard lackadaisical approach, you know, well, yeah, I'll just give a little bit here. Because this is Almighty God we're coming before. We've learned that if we are true worshipers, that we need to relinquish our grasp on the world. There has to be a choice made. You know, we're seeking the world or are we seeking God? Are we seeking what the world is offering to us or are we seeking what God offers? And there's a sharp contrast between the two. But the world tries to downplay that, just make it not that, that drastic, not that critical. And you can really dabble a little bit in the world and be just fine. And God says, you know, you have to make a clear choice. Do you love the world or do you love me? So worshiping God is a a total package. It's all or nothing. It's not just piecemeal. And it's not just in part. It's all or nothing. We need to to choose God above everything else. So I want to ask you this morning, it's kind of this beginning question. What motivates you to live for God? What motivates you to uh, follow Christ, to worship God, to serve God, to love God? I mean, what is it that, that gets you to do that? What is it that pushes you? What, what drives you? Now, maybe you've never really thought about that. Uh, maybe you've never really stopped to consider that. But getting real uh, in our relationship means we, we step back and we say, why do I even do what I do? Why am I a Christian? Why do I try to do good things? Why do I go to church? And so on. Now, some people go to church, not because it's their idea, but because they, somebody else, they want to please. Maybe they're pushed to go by their parents. Maybe it's their spouse. Maybe it's uh, you know, some other expectation that somebody has on them. And they're kind of people-pleasing. You know, well, they, they stay off my back if I go. You know, so I'm going to go, and I'm just going to just kind of go along with the process. Some people uh, do what they do for God only because they want other people to look up to them. You know, they try and impress somebody else, or uh, not just going to church, but even though some people may use church, you know, for other things, other contacts that they have, uh, but but just to impress people with their goodness, and they're a good moral person, they do good works, they do nice things, they're kind, and, and so on, uh, and so they're constantly building their reputation with other people. Some people's relationship with God is motivated by fear. You know, they, they first became a Christian because they wanted to escape hell, <laughs> And they said, you know, I, I know that if I don't do something, I'm going to end up in hell because I'm a sinner. And that's the right thing to do, the right decision. 
But that's the main motivation, is that fear. And they live their Christian life kind of looking over their shoulder like, is God seeing this, you know? Is God watching me now? Is he going to come after me because of this? And their motivation is that. And instead of loving God, they really, they really fear God. Others go to church and do Christian things because they're trying to kind of justify themselves or to even maybe save themselves. They won't say it that way, but, you know, they kind of think of life as this, this scales, you know, and, and you have good things on one side, bad things on the other, and, and you know you've done some bad things, but as long as you do enough good things to outweigh that, it's okay. The bad things may still be there, and they're really not going to talk about that much, but the good things, if I keep doing those, God will, on that basis, allow me into heaven. And you kind of get out of, out of sorts there of what God really said. You know, you can't earn your way. You can't buy your way. You can't do enough good deeds to overcome the bad. You need to trust Christ. And he's given us his grace for that. So what about you? What motivates you to follow Jesus Christ? Have you sorted it out? Do you know? Well, the best motivation of anything is love for God. Uh, and we want to talk about that love. Because there's so many other motivations that may play into it that we kind of lose that. We are distracted and we miss love. And that is the motivation. That's the one that trumps all motivations. It is the only pure motivation we have for serving God, for being a Christian, for going to church, and all the things that we may do as a Christian. And so love is that pure motivation. That's what we're going to talk about. It. Would you pray with me as we go into the Word of God today? Uh, Lord, we, we come to your word expectantly. We come uh, anticipating and knowing that uh, we are dependent on you. Uh, the, the, any wisdom we have, any, any awareness we have comes from you. We are not smart enough to figure these things out. And we depend on what you have revealed. Uh, we depend on you right now through your Holy Spirit to reveal to us what is the truth, what is right, what we need to know. Uh, because when we get our hearts right and our heads right, our lives are changed. And we invite you now, Lord, just to speak to our hearts. Uh, and I want to just kind of step out of the way, Lord, and let you speak. Uh, to, to say whatever you want to say to each heart. Maybe even uh, besides the words that come out of my mouth. You speak to each one of us now. And you teach us your way uh, as your Holy Spirit works in our midst today. Uh, we bow to you. Uh, we surrender to you. And we open our hearts to you right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we're going to go together again today to 1 John. If you find a Bible, either one you brought with you or the one that's in the seat there, uh, let's turn over to 1 John. It's toward the very end of the whole Bible. Uh, one of the last books there. Three little letters written by John, the apostle. 1 John chapter 4, and we're going to be starting at verse 7 today. John 4, 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. And he sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete 
in us. First thing John says here is that love is God's idea. It's not our idea. It's not something we own. Love originated with him. God loved us first. It started with him, not us. Specifically, it started with him sending Jesus into the world, as he says, our atoning sacrifice, so that we could be saved. He says, if we have been born of God, then we become people who love. Because God's love starts in us. We are his children, and it's kind of like part of the DNA now. It's built into us to love others. We know how to love. We know what love is because God gave it to us first. If we don't love other people, John says, then we really don't know God. And the, the sign that we're knowing God, that we're learning about God, is that this love starts coming out. This love that we never had before starts showing up. God lives in us, and he makes his love complete in us. He also says people can't see God. None of us you know, look around and see God, but they, they can see God in us as his love is shown to them. And that's where God is made visible. God is magnified, we would say. God is is, is made known, manifested in the love that we express to other people. And so God loves through us, and God receives the glory. Most of the other paragraphs in chapter 4 kind of amplify these truths, but we will look at a couple examples. Verses 16 to 18. Skip down to that, please. And so we know and we rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world, we are like him. There is no fear in love because perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We rely on the love of God. We rely heavily on the love of God. You know, I don't have enough love. Do you? Do you have enough love for the unlovely? Do you have enough love for the people who hurt you, the people who offend you, the people who are disagreeable to you, the people that you want to avoid? I don't have enough love in me for them. But God does. And when God's love starts to flow through me, and when I rely on that, somehow I'm able to have that love. When we love as God loves, He is living in us. His love is flowing through us. And this gives us confidence that, hey, we may be okay here. Even in the day of judgment, there's no fear about that because God is making himself known to us and through us, and we feel this confidence that God is alive, God is working, and we are ready for what happens today. We're ready for the future, ready even for the day of judgment. And perfect love, as this love is perfected, as love is this fulfilled in us, we have this confidence that we're okay and we'll be okay. And that God will be with us to the end of this life and on into eternity. Love must be our motivation, not fear of punishment. And so the first of two points I want to kind of share that John gives about motivation is simply this. He says, the only pure motive for our devotion to God is love. Uh, is our love for God. The only pure motivation that we can have for life is love. And I want you to think about that this morning because we may have all kinds of other motivations, other things that push us. This is the drive. This is the power that ought to be fueling our lives for God. We serve Christ for the love of God. We worship God 
for the love of God. We go to church for the love of God. Love must be our motivation, not fear. Love must be our motivation, not, not pride or seeking pleasure in my life. Love must be our motivation, not trying to justify, justify myself or, or make myself look good to other people or, or somehow earn something that I don't really deserve. Let's continue reading down in verse 19. We'll go into the first few verses of chapter 5. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and yet he hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God by loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love for God to obey his commands, and his commands are not, are not burdensome. Notice John says again, what well, we've already heard, that love uh, is from God. We love because he first loved us. He's the source. He also says if we truly love God, we're going to love our brothers, we're going to love our sisters, we're going to love the other people around us, brother or sister or stranger uh, friend or enemy, friend or foe, it doesn't matter. This is God's command that we love each other and it is non-negotiable. You don't get to choose who you love. You're supposed to love everybody and find a way to do that. But note John adds another thought here, another dimension here. He says that love for God is shown by obedience. It's not shown by wishful thinking. It's not shown by professing the right things, singing the right songs, praying the right prayers. It's shown by obedience, by living this out day after day and loving people as he has first loved us. What does he command? Well, Jesus said it. In Matthew, he said, here's the two greatest commandments. He says, you're to love God with what? With all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. That's everything, isn't it? That's the first command. What's the second one? Love your neighbors yourself. So you know this. So you say, well, what is the command? What am I supposed to do? If I'm going to be obedient, my love brings obedience, there you go, right there. Love God, love people, as you even love yourself. Jesus also added a command in John 13. You probably know these verses. He says, a new command I give you, that you love one another. Not really that new. He's enforcing it. He's, he's saying this is important. This is the command I want you to keep in mind. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And in fact, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And this is where the church has really damaged its reputation. This is where the church fails so many times in lives of people that are kind of looking at things and watching us. Because we don't love each other, and we're in fights with other churches, or we're in fights with other Christians, and we're disagreeing, and we're spouting off about all the things that they've got wrong, and all the things they're doing wrong, and we don't like that, and we don't like this. And the rest of the world's like, why do I want to be a part of that? Why would I get in on that? And Jesus said, this is my command, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you would love one another. Loving our brothers and sisters is a constant theme in John's letters, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. It's right there. Always he's saying, little children, you need to love one another. You need to figure this out. Make this happen in your churches. It is ludicrous, he says, for us to say to God that we love him, but we don't love each other. In fact, he says, we're liars. 
if that's how we're trying to live. You know, you can't, you can't profess love for God and then you don't care about people. You find a way to love the people around you through the power of God, through the love that God has shown to you. And the second major point then that John is making here is this. Loving God is going to change us. It's going to change us inside. It's going to change how we think, how we feel, how we act, and how we deal with other people. It's going to change that. And when that motivation is at the top, when that's the pure motivation of your life to love God, it changes everything. It changes how we live. This love is powerful. This love is life-changing. You want to see your life change? You really work on this loving God. You work on coming before God and saying, God, it's not about me. It's about you. It's about loving you. It's about living for you. It's about pleasing you. And it changes the perspective. It changes the direction. It changes everything about our lives. God's love changes how we live and what we live for. God's, God's love is, is, is uh, something that can capture us, that can grab a hold of us and just shake us and change our hearts. His love heals us of the hurts we've had. His love restores us. His, heart, his love uh, renews us. And his love gives us a, a, a different way of doing things, a, a power even to do those things. This love is a game changer. It's what it is. It's a game changer. And nothing can be the same once that love captures your heart or mind. Now let me try to illustrate in another way. I read about this lady that's a, a dog trainer. She's a British dog, dog trainer. Her name is, is Barbara uh, Woodhouse. And she wrote this book that's called No Bad Dogs. Anybody want a good dog and you have a bad dog? How many dog owners do we have here anyhow? A lot of dog owners. How many cat owners? Yeah. Okay, which is better? Oh, no, we won't get into that. Okay, okay. <laughs> we'll start that. Well, this is what Barbara Woodhouse says. I want you to listen to this. This is, this is interesting. You dog owners tell me whether it's true or not because I'm not a dog owner, but I, I really believe she's right. In a dog's mind... In a dog's mind, okay, you got to get inside his mind, a master or a mistress to love, honor, and obey is an absolute necessity. A dog needs that master or mistress to love, honor, and obey. The, dog, the love that is in a dog is dormant until brought into full bloom by an understanding owner. Now, thousands of dogs appear to love their owners. They welcome them home with enthusiastic wagging of the tail, jumping up, they follow them, about the houses happily, and to the normal person seeing the dog, the affection is true and deep, she says. But to the experienced dog trainer, this outward show is not enough. You'll get that if you just feed them. You know, you'll get that if you give them water, and if you let them out of the house when they need to get out of the house. But the true test, she says, of love, it takes place when the dog has got the opportunity to go out on its own as soon as the door is left open, by mistake, and it goes off and often doesn't return for hours. Maybe never. <laughs> that dog loves only its home comforts and the attention it gets from its family. It doesn't truly love the master or mistress as they fondly think they do. True love in dogs is apparent when a door is left open and the dog still stays happily within earshot of its owner. For the owner must be the be-all and the end-all of a dog's life. I want you to hear that. 
First thing she said was this. In a dog's mind, a master or mistress to, lo is to love, to honor, to obey is an absolute necessity. And then at the end she says, the owner must be the be-all and end-all of a dog's life. That's when you know that the dog loves its owner. Does that have any implications for us? When we have the opportunity to wander away, do we? When we have the opportunity to disobey, to do something unpleasing to God, do we? The door is left open by mistake. You know, the, the owner is busy, not really paying attention. Is that when we wander away? Or is that love for God so deep, so pervasive, so learned, so... Uh, brought into our lives, you know, just, just part of who we are, this, this, is, this is how we live, that even when that opportunity is there, we don't wander off. We don't go chasing after the squirrels. We don't go looking for the neighbor who might have a you know, bowl of food sitting nearby. You know, we don't go somewhere else because this is the one we're devoted to. It's an absolute necessity in our life that we live for this owner. That's love. Loving as God first loved us brings Him glory. Loving as He first loved us is worship because it magnifies God. Doesn't happen just Sunday morning for an hour. It happens anytime you do something and God shows up. When God gets the glory, when you love somebody that doesn't expect it, when you go over to Westgate School and you help them, and when you go down to Lynchburg and you help build a house for somebody who's disabled, and when you go across the street to your neighbor and you provide something for them when they're hurt or they've had surgery, or, or maybe when you notice a person in the cubicle next to you or a fellow student, you know, and they're, they're kind of struggling in something, and, and you pick up, you, you do something, you step it up, you, you step in there and you do something for them. God shows up through you and God is magnified and God is worshipped. In that, God has brought glory. Is that our motive? To bring glory to God. Several thousand years ago, in Egypt, there was a guy that was named Sinidius. And Sinidius was a great architect. And so the Pharaoh said to Sinidius, he said, we're having trouble with the, our ships out there uh, crashing against these rocks on the coastline. And I want you to build this huge watchtower. It's kind of like a precursor to a lighthouse, you know. Build this big watchtower, and people will know where the danger is, and they'll avoid that, and ships will come safely into harbor. So Sinidius goes out there to build this big watchtower on the coast of Egypt, and he, he gets almost near the top, and he decides when the in stone in the stone, he's going to carve his name into it. And this one block, he chiseled his name into it. He says, well, the king will never you know, uh, understand that. king will never... Uh, appreciate that. So he put plaster over that where he had chiseled his own, own name and in big gold letters he wrote the name of Pharaoh. <laughs> and, and he knew that in time with the water and the waves crashing against that and just the, the humidity and everything, eventually that plaster was going to fall off. But by then, he'd be gone, the Pharaoh would be gone, but his name would be left on this watchtower. And you see what he's doing? You see what he was thinking? You know, the, the whole idea, Pharaoh thought he's honoring him, he's, he's uh, doing what he wants to do, he's commanded him to do. But Sinidius is thinking of himself. His motive 
is apparent. He's got self-love. He has a desire for fame, desire for reputation, desire for his name being left engraved. After all is said and done, how many people as Christians might be doing a similar thing? You know, pretending, you know, it's this is for God. I'm up here to sing. I'm, I'm up here to preach. I'm out there doing good works. I'm, I'm telling my neighbor about Jesus. I'm talking it up. Or, or maybe I'm just doing this or that, you know, as a Christian. But really, I want a pat on the back. Really, I want somebody to say, that's a good job. I want somebody else to respect me, to appreciate me. And I'm going to get glory out of this. I'm not really seeking the glory of God. I don't know how many people are doing that. And I'm not really worried about it because I have enough to worry about right here. Don't you? You know, why? What is the motivation? Is it love for God? Is it to bring glory to God? Every day we live our lives, we must live with this motive that we're going to show our love for God and bring glory to Him. Our passion, desire has to be for Him. Are you living for the love of God? If fear is what motivates you to go to church or to try to follow Christ, then Christianity just becomes a list of do's and don'ts, a lot of rules and rituals and, re and regulations. And there is no life in that. There is no life in that. That is death. That is, that is uh, the most boring existence. If that's what it's about, check off the list. You know, I did it. I, I, I got it right. I did more good than I did bad. If you're going to church and doing good works and godly things only to justify or save yourself, it's going to be impossible. If you ever find peace, be satisfied with that. There's no life in that. But if love for God is the motivation, if love for God is the thing that drives you, you're going to continue drawing as close to God as you possibly can. And you're going to blossom. You're going to have more joy and more uh, happiness in your life in spite of your circumstances than you ever had before. Because it's not about you. And it's not about whether you're all well. And it's not about whether everybody's safe. And it's not about whether you get ahead financially. It's not about whether everything goes your way. Because you're in it for God, not for you. And you're in it for the love of God and the glory of God. 2 Timothy 3. Paul uses a, a, a thing that I want to share with you in a minute, but I want you to think about something. I want you to think about something familiar to all of you. It's called a cicada. Everybody know what a cicada is? You know, the cicadas make a lot of noise, don't they? It drives you crazy in the summer. Loud. And it's this mating call or whatever they do. You know, I don't know much about cicadas, but I know it's, it's aggravating. It's frustrating. I got a picture of a cicada because when a cicada leaves its exoskeleton, this is what it leaves behind. We got that picture to show? This is not coming up. Okay. That's one of the last slides. Or I don't know what happened to it. Anyhow. In this cicada picture, you see what it's like. It's just a shell, and it's still clinging to the tree. Remember? You seen that? As kids, we used to pull them off and throw them on the ground and step on them. They pop. <laughs> yeah, that's what kids do. <laughs> but what I want you to think about is, is that empty shell. Is your Christian life real? Or is it an empty shell? Is it the real thing? Or is it just the exoskeleton that is left behind? And this is what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3. He says, mark this. There are going to be terrible times in the last days. People 
will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, uh, rash, and conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Have you ever read a better description of 2013 America than that? I haven't. That is the best description I can rem I've ever seen. This is where people are. This is this is where our culture is today. Right here, this is the list. Right here in Second Timothy, chapter three, and then notice he says in verse five, they have a form of godliness, but deny its power. They have the form. They have the exoskeleton. They have this shell, but they deny the power have nothing to do with them. That's what Paul says. Does that passage in any way describe your life? Does that passage in any way describe your Christianity, the way you live for God? Is it all about the form? Is it all about the exoskeleton? Is it all about the empty ritual and rules and do's and don'ts and, and all the things that we might do that equate with the Christianity but what is missing is the power. The power is in the love. The power is in the love of God and a love for God. If our worship is tired and unfulfilling, if our worship is barren and empty, if our worship is not vital and is not strong, probably we need go no further than to go to a mirror and look into it. Why is it weak? Why is it boring? Why is it unfulfilling? It's because my relationship with God, my relationship with God is not based on love. It's not based on a desire to please Him. It's not based on a desire to obey Him and to magnify Him, to glorify Him. And that's why the power is missing and I feel this emptiness. And you... Maybe try and blame it on a lot of other things. And probably some of the things apply. But it really comes down to where are you? Where's your heart? What is your relationship with God? So I want to encourage you today. We can change whatever that feeling may be. If it's not the right feeling, if it's not the right power that's flowing through you and you feel this connection with God, that can be changed. We can change that emptiness into life. We can change that longing into satisfaction. We can change that emptiness into being filled by the one who first loved us and gave his life for us. And your life can be so much more than maybe it's ever been before. Live for the love of God. Obey for the love of God. Worship for the love of God. Four-year-old Martha, hugging a doll in each arm, came walking into the kitchen. She had this dejected, almost heartbroken look on her face. Well, her mother noticed her and she said, Honey, honey, what's wrong? She says, Mama, she says, I keep loving them and loving them and loving them and they never love me back. Could God ever say that about us? Are we loving Him? And are we letting that power come through us to love others? And do we see in that the opportunity to, 
to obey him, to glorify him, to magnify him in this world. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful that you love us. Uh, we don't deserve that love. We have to acknowledge that, that we are unworthy. We bow uh, just in, in humble, uh, in, in shame, really, embarrassment uh, at times that you would love us. But you do. We can't get around that love. We can't, we can't uh, discredit that love, discount it in any way, because you showed that love. You gave your son. He died so that we might live. Uh, we'll never really understand that. We, we, can, we can try and we can respond, but it's beyond our grasp to know how you could do that. And Lord, uh, as your children, as those who have been reclaimed, redeemed, as those who have accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and are living for him, I pray that your power would be unleashed in our lives. I pray that we would open our hearts to you and there would be a new, a new beginning for us. There would be a new awareness of that love. And we would be motivated totally, purely by that love. And our desire would be to show our love for you through our obedience, through uh, our daily lives, our thoughts, our desires, and through the way we interact with the people around us, that, that your love would flow through to us, to people that we, we never could love before. We never knew how to do that. But now with your love, we can. And I pray that you would uh, just come, come to us. And uh, if there's someone here that needs salvation that you can give, that they'd be ready for that. They'd open their heart to that. And for all of us that have already opened our hearts for that, Lord, that you would be, would be mighty in our lives. You would show up and, and be powerful in our lives and change us, reshape us, and uh, let your low, love flow through us. Uh, bless us today, Lord, as we come before you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. we stand together and sing a song called Mighty to Save. If you have a desire to give your life to Christ, you come forward and let us know that.